The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. Welcome to NDE Radio. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. Well, I was trying to think of something to do for Christmas, a little different type of show, and I came across a story I had written 25 years ago, as a matter of fact, when I was in seminary, and it's about uh, Jacob's Pillow, also known as the Stone of Scone, and it's the legend of that. I wrote it for a teacher who didn't believe in legends or mythology as such, and and she was uh, rather annoyed that I had taken the time to do this, but I think it might make an interesting story. It's not specifically about Christmas. It's the history of the stone, and it's told by the stone itself. And I begin with a quote from Luke. And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And that's Luke 24, 25 through 27. And this is on the road when they... Um, are trying to figure out who the stranger is who knows so much about what it was Jesus was there to do. What a revelation it must have been for the disciples on that walk to Emmaus to hear an explanation of the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah from Jesus himself. Try as we might, Christians cannot understand their faith without understanding that we are that branch of Judaism known as the Way and that our faith traditions are deeply rooted in the Old Testament texts. The legend of Jacob's pillow is one of those links Christians draw upon from our Torah heritage. It is remarkable, perhaps, that the story retained great power for Christians up until the reestablishment of Israel, at which time it has faded from our teachings. Nevertheless, it is a faith-building lesson that deserves to be remembered if only to remind ourselves of the continuity of the Hebrew heritage underlying Christian faith. In retelling this tale, I've tried to include all the main legendary elements, along with the biblical references uh, usually cited. I've included some historical notes at the end, which I have excerpted from Jacob's Pillar by E. May Raymond Capt. It was a fellow who also loved these stories. Um, this retelling for children is is told by Jacob's Pillow, the Stone itself. And I titled it The Legend of Jacob's Pillow. And remember, this is the stone itself talking. It's so long ago I can hardly remember when I was only a stone, a squarish chunk of grave sandstone lying in a heap of other stones just outside a town named Lutz. Nobody called it Lutz today, calls it Lutz today since Father Jacob renamed it Bethel after me, but I'm getting ahead of my story. It was about 4,000 years ago that it happened. Of course, 4,000 years seems like nothing to a stone because stones live a very long time. But to human beings, 4,000 years is a very long time indeed. About that long ago, Jacob and his party were just passing by at the moment when the sun went down. Jacob was in a hurry and didn't want to stop. He'd left his home in Beersheba, uh, south of Jerusalem, 
and was on his way to Haran, where his mother's family lived. Jacob had tricked his father Isaac just before he left, and his brother Esau was angry with him too. Jacob's mother, sensing trouble, thought this would be a really good time for Jacob to leave home, find himself a wife, and start a family somewhat safely away from his angry brother. But it was dark and time to camp for the night. To protect the back of his head where he lay on the ground, Jacob selected me, a rock, to be his pillow that night. It changed our lives forever, and now I'll tell you why. As soon as Jacob fell asleep, an amazing thing happened. His dream was my dream, and this is what we dreamed. A staircase went up to heaven, and I was the first step. That's right. A staircase reached up to heaven, and angels were walking up and down on it. Their feet touched me, and I felt the thrill of being linked to heaven. Then, amazingly, God was standing on top of the staircase. God told Jacob he was giving him all the land around us, and that Jacob's children and all their descendants would be countless in number and would spread throughout the whole world. God told Jacob he would be with him wherever he would go. Well, Jacob woke up and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Then he set me, the stone, up as a pillar, poured oil on me, and said I was God's house. Now because God said he would stay with Jacob, Jacob took me, the lowly stone he'd named God's house, on his journey to Haran. Jacob remained in Haran for 14 years, working to earn the wife he loved. Then Jacob saw an angel, the god of Bethel, though whether the angel came out of me, I'm sure I'll never know. I was as surprised as Jacob was. The angel told us to leave Haran and go back to Jacob's home. And here's the quote from Genesis. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go forth from this land, and return to the land of your birth. That's Genesis thirty-one eleven to 13. We had many adventures on the way, including a night where Jacob wrestled all night with an angel. Finally, we came to my home, Bethel, because God told Jacob to go back and build an altar for me there. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there, and make there an altar to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your from your brother Esau. Genesis thirty five one. Now some people have wondered why God would ask Jacob to build another altar at Bethel, since he had built one the day after his dream about the stairway to heaven. But others have explained it was because he had taken me, the first altar pillar, with him on his travels. For that reason, God wanted him to build another altar there. And Jacob came to Lutz, that is Bethel, which is the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, God of Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. Genesis 35, 6, 7. So Jacob set up a new pillar at Bethel. And God gave Jacob the name of Israel. That's because Jacob's sons would found the twelve tribes of Israel. But I continued to travel with Jacob wherever he went, 
even to Egypt, when he went there as an old man. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here am I. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will there make you of you a great nation. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Genesis 46, 1-4. Jacob blessed all his sons before he died, but he gave the birthright, and me, the rock of Israel, to his favorite son, Joseph. Joseph is a fruitful bough. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, by the name of the shepherd, the rock of Israel. Genesis 49, 22-24 Jacob called me a shepherd, and a shepherd must stay with his flock. After Jacob died, I remained in Egypt with his children and his children's children for more than 200 years, till Moses came to lead Israel's people out of Egypt. When the Pharaoh finally let us go, he allowed the people of Israel to take all their possessions with them, including me. And it was a good thing they took me along, because God used me again along the way. When the people desperately needed water, God told Moses how to make water flow from me for the people and herds to drink. Unfortunately, though, Moses got in trouble with God for striking me twice. This is from the Bible. And the Lord said to Moses, Take the rod and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them. So you shall give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the rod before the, uh, from before the Lord, as he commanded. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, Here now, you rebels, shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his rod twice. And water came forth abundantly, and the congregation drank and their cattle. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me, to sanctify me in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Numbers 20, 7-3 Paul referred to this in his first letter to the Corinthians. Paul wrote, For they drank from the supernatural rock which followed them, and the rock with was Christ. And the rock was Christ. 1 Corinthians 10.4 Paul's words are not the only time that I've been called a type for Christ, but I've never let it affect me. After all, none of these experiences were of my own doing. Heck, I'm only a rock, and not a pretty one at that. I'm rather dullish, purple in color, about 26 inches long, 16 inches wide, and 10 and a half inches deep, and I, I weigh about 336 pounds. I'm partly smooth, partly rough, with a crack running down my middle. Moreover, there are two metal rings drilled into either end of me and a deep worn groove where the carrying pole rubbed against me after all those miles I traveled. It's not surprising, then, that there have been long times when I have been completely neglected. For instance, after God told Moses to build a gold-covered ark to carry the stones on which God wrote the Ten Commandments, my status as the rock became considerably less important to the people of Israel. 
In fact, there had been some problem with people worshipping me as if I were some sort of pagan idol. But that became less of a problem after the ark became the mercy seat of God. Still, the people carried me along wherever they went until we reached the promised land. Actually, you know, the promised land was the land I had come from, the land surrounding Bethel, which God had given to Jacob and his descendants. So I was more or less home. And I certainly wasn't ignored. When King Solomon planned his great temple in Jerusalem, the architect studied me to see if I would make a good cornerstone. But I was rejected. Not only was I in the rough, but they decided the crack in me from which the water had flowed in the desert made me unsuitable. So I remained in the tabernacle with the ark, practically forgotten during the seven and a half years it took to build Solomon's temple. But when it was completed, a wonderful thing happened. Out of the blue, it seemed, the temple priests decided that kings should stand by or sit on me during the ceremony, the coronation ceremony. For that purpose, I was moved to the coronation corner of the temple. And from Kings, when Athaliah heard the noise of the guard and his people, he went into the house of the Lord to his people. And when he looked, there was the king standing by the pillar, me, according to the custom, and the captains and the trumpeters beside the king, and all the people of the land rejoicing and blowing trumpets. Second Kings eleven thirteen fourteen. Coronations were quite an event, as you can imagine. And I was there with each king. My change of fortune did not go unnoticed either, for it is written in Psalm 118, I thank thee that thou hast answered me and hast become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Those were great days, but they didn't last for long. Israel was surrounded by enemies, and among the most powerful and ruthless were the Assyrians and the Babylonians. Between 745 and 721 BC, the ten northern tribes known as the House of Israel and a large portion of the southern kingdom known as the House of Judah were conquered and led away into captivity. From Second Kings, Then the king of Assyria invaded all the land and came to Samaria, and for three years he besieged it. In the ninth year of Hosiah, the king of Assyria captured Samaria. And he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Hala and on the Habor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. Second Kings 17, 5 and 6. When Jerusalem was threatened, I was hidden away with the ark for safekeeping. It was not until later I learned that most of the northern tribes escaped with their, from their Assyrian captors. Some of them went around the southern end of the Black Sea into the Danube River Valley and the Carpathian Mountains. Other Israelites went through the Darial Pass of the Caucasus Mountains into the steppes of southern Russia. History might never have known for sure if tablets uncovered at the Assyrian Royal Library at Nineveh had not been confirmed, had not confirmed the story told in Second Estrus. And that is... And whereas thou sawest that he gathered among another peaceable multitude unto him, those are the ten tribes which were carried away prisoners out of their own land in the time of Osiah the king, when Salamanasar, 
Salmanasar, the king of Assyria, led away into another land. But they took this counsel among themselves that they would leave the multitude of the heathen and go forth into further country, where never mankind dwelt, and they might there keep their statutes, which they never kept in their own land. And they entered into Euphrates by the narrow passages of the river. For the Most High then showed signs to them and held still the flood till they were passed over. For through that country there was a great way to go, namely a year and a half, and the same region is called Arsarath. Second Edris, Esdras thirteen thirty nine forty five. Some people said, have said that the lost tribes must have taken me with them, but the Assyrians would never have allowed them to take me along. And anyway, Hosea had it right in reporting. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, me, without ephod or teraphim. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Hosea 3, 4 to 5. Yes, I was the coronation pillar that he went without for a time. Yet amazingly enough, I came to meet them in a land far away from Israel under circumstances so surprising that many historians don't believe it even to this day. And that's why I'm here to tell the story. The man who saved me from the hammer and rescued two Israeli princesses in the bargain was the prophet Jeremiah. You see, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon made a big mistake. He wanted to wipe out the royal line of David and thereby end God's promise that David's children would rule forever. With this in mind, King Nebuchadnezzar killed Israel's king Zedekiah and all his sons. But what King Nebuchadnezzar didn't know is that under Hebrew law, a daughter can inherit as though she were a son and the right of descent would pass to her male offspring. Jeremiah escaped to a Milesian garrison with King Zedekiah's daughters and me. To uh, He went to Egypt. And to quote Jeremiah, But Jonanon and the son of Kariah and all the commanders of the forces took all of the remnant of Judah who had returned to live in the land of Judah from all the nations to which they had been driven, the men, the women, the children, the princesses, and every person whom Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, had left um, with the son of Achikam, the son of Shaphan. Also Jeremiah the prophet and Baruch, the son of Neriah. And they came into the land of Egypt, for they did not obey the voice of the Lord. And the, by the way, had told them not to go to Egypt. <laughs> and they uh, and they went by the uh, Greek fortress, uh, and they arrived at Atafanis. Uh, that's uh, Jeremiah 43, 5-7. Tafanis, by the way, was the Greek fortress named Daphne and is known today as Tel Daphina. It has had walls 40 feet thick and even today is known as uh, the Palace of the Jew's Daughter in memory of our visit there. Yet even Egypt would not prove safe for us, Jeremiah said, because God told him, all the men of Judah who are in the land of Egypt shall be consumed by the sword and by famine until there is an end to them. Jeremiah forty three twenty seven. 
I will punish those who dwell in the land of Egypt as I have punished Jerusalem, with the sword, with famine, and with pestilence, so that none of the remnant of Judah who have come to live in the land of Egypt shall escape or survive or return to the land of Judah, to which they desire to return to, to dwell there. For they shall not return, except some fugitives. Jeremiah 44, 13, 14. But we few, Jeremiah, Baruch, the princesses, and some others, were safe because of promises made earlier by God to Jeremiah and by Jeremiah's divine commission. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. Jeremiah 1, 10. The Bible reports on the overflow and overthrow and destruction, but it remains silent on the building and the planting. Jeremiah and the others would be called upon to do, for that would take place on the far northern island of Ireland. Now, it is hard for some to understand why Jeremiah, Baruch, the princesses, and I would travel on a boat from Egypt to Ireland, unless they believe, with the ancient historians, that Hebrew seafarers left Egypt at the time of the Exodus to help colonize Greece, found Troy, and establish trading posts in England, Scotland, and Ireland. But in recalling this forgotten history of the people of Israel beyond the Middle East, it becomes easy to see why Jeremiah and our company would venture to this new land to escape God's warning to us. There are many legends about establishing and renewing the covenant at Tara, uh, or maybe Torah, Ireland, and how the remnants of the seafaring tribe of Dan merged with the lost tribes as they moved west from their escape from the Assyrians to become the Celts and Gauls. As for me, I remained uh, the coronation stone through all the wars and upheaval and, lo- upheaval and loss of faith to pagan gods and, until the coming to Christianity. I remained in Tara for nearly a thousand years, till Fergus the Great removed me to Scotland. In 563, I was taken to Iona, then to Dunstafnedge, and then to Scone, Scotland, where I uh, came to be known as the Stone of Scone. In 1296, Edward I moved me to Westminster Abbey, where I lived until my recent move back to Scotland. And all this time, I have served as the coronation stone to the kings who descended from the house of David. If anyone doubts that, they should consult the genealogical table at Windsor Castle, showing the descent of the British kings from David through the Irish and Scottish lines. But enough about charts and dates. Those who believe will believe, and those who won't will not. Suffice it to say that I have continued to play the role as our coronation stone from my arrival in Tara, Torah, Ireland, to my travels to Scotland, to my life in Westminster Abbey, to my recent move back to Edinburgh, Scotland. Today I am known as the Stone of Scone, and for nearly 2,500 years the kings and queens who continue the royal line of David and the promise of God to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob have been crowned sitting over me where I rested at the base of the British Empire's coronation chair. The most excitement I've had in recent years happened on Christmas Eve, 1950, while the Westminster Choir was singing Noel, some thieves, Scottish nationals, came to St. Edward's Chapel and stole me. 
Shortly afterward, my captors wrote the newspapers demanding that I should uh, I should reside in Scotland. Unfortunately, in the process of dragging me out of Westminster Abbey, my ancient crack finally gave way, and they had to put me back together with dowels and cement. My captors finally abandoned me, wrapped in the Scottish flag, St. Andrew's Cross. They left me on the high altar of the ruined Abbey of Aberoth in Scotland. But in recent years, I have been relegated to a quiet corner of the world's affairs. With the terrible suffering of the Jews during the Holocaust of World War II, followed by the reestablishment of Israel in 1948, England decided not to annoy their Jewish brothers with claims that upset them. In the early 1950s, the sign describing me as Jacob's Pillow was quietly removed from my place of prominence beneath the coronation chair at Westminster Abbey. And recently, after centuries of demands from the Scots, the Royal House of Great Britain agreed to return me to Edinburgh, Scotland. But sometimes I can't help but think that the blessings and curses of kingship travel wherever I go. For since my return to Scotland, the Scottish independence movement has come full flower again, while the royal house in England has gone into decline. Nevertheless, those who believe my history believe that God's covenant with the house of David has been fulfilled through the thrones of Europe. And to quote Second Samuel, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Second Samuel 7.16 Since I am only a stone, and these are some historical notes at the end of the story, since I am only a stone, let me quote a scholar who has studied the matter over the years. Wonderful legends and traditions combine with history to tell the following story. Cal Cole, grandson of Judah, son of Zara, and brother of Dara, that was the mystical founder of Athens and its first king. From there, historian E. Raymond Cap continues the story in these following excerpts from his book. Historical records tell of the westward migration of the descendants of Calcol along the shores of the Mediterranean Sea, establishing Iberian Hebrew trading settlements. One settlement, now called Zaragoza, in the Ebro Valley of Spain, was originally known as Zaragasa, meaning the stronghold of Zara. From Spain, they traveled westward as far as Ireland. The Iberians gave their name to Ireland, calling the land Iberning, which was later abbreviated to Erne and subsequently Latinized to Hibernia, a name that still adheres to Ireland. Many historical records point to Israel's presence, particularly Dan and Judah in Ireland at at a very early date. On Ptolemy's ancient map of Ireland, we find in the northern eastern corner of the island such names as Dan Soar, Dan's resting place, and Dan Solbarse, Dan's habitation. Gladstone's Juventus, uh, Juventus Munte and the old Psalter of Cashel both state that some of the Grecian Danae left Greece and invaded Ireland. Writers such as Petanius and Hecotoes of um, Abdera, 6th century, speak of Danae as being Hebrew people, originally from Egypt, who colonized Ireland. The history of Ireland uh, by Moore states that the ancient Irish called the Danae or Danes, 
separated from Israel around the time of the exodus from Egypt, crossed to Greece, and then invaded Ireland. The Tuatha de Danann means the tribe of Dan, and uh, the Book of Conquests of Ireland give their earlier name as Tuatha de, meaning people of God. The great Irish historiographer Eugene O'Curry says, the de Danann were a people remarkable for their knowledge of the domestic, if not the higher arts of civilized life. The ships of the Tuatha de Danann are credited with bringing Jeremiah and Jacob's Pillar to Ireland. Well, I will end there. <laughs> and wishing you all uh, a Merry Christmas, a Happy Holiday. And uh, bear in mind that the mythologies of um, the ancient peoples uh, carry strong weight, even subconsciously, uh, in our religions of today. So it's uh, it it bears in mind. Uh, it's um, good a good thing to keep in mind, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. That that these stories are out there, and that um, the continuity of the story of Jacob's pillow or the stone of scone is a is a remarkable one, tying uh, the Old Testament to the New Testament to today. Well, we are out of time for today, and I, I hope you enjoyed this um, break from the near-death experiences. This is a Christmas gift, if you'll take it as such, from me to you. So for all of you out there, you have a wonderful time and hopefully a healthy time in 2022 as we move into the new year. This is Lee Whitting saying thanks for listening. <laughs>